Man, I'll tell you what, I was just sitting here thinking about the sermon this morning, and as the choir was singing, I was reminded as a teenager when uh, I accepted Christ, which was for the second time, but yet the first time. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, when I was uh, in middle school, uh, I went to an old church, and some friends of mine went, and I prayed a prayer, and that was about it. But as I got older, and things started getting more difficult in my life, I remember plainly accepting Jesus Christ as my Savior. And the difference in the prayer this time was, is that there was a difference afterwards. And I was lucky I had some folks in my life that discipled that. But but I remember that feeling. I remember that, that almost snow-white feeling of where finally the 100-pound weight that you've been carrying has been lifted because you have the Holy Spirit in you and you are starting clean. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. And so it's almost like if you've ever been fortunate enough to buy a new car. When you get into the car, and you, that, that smell is intoxicating, is it not? Just to be able to, to smell a new car. Now, they sell it in a bottle, but it's not the same. And so um, it's just something about that newness, or like even a, a, a powder-fresh baby, you know, all of these Things that are attributed with a clean start. Wouldn't it be great if we could have a clean start? Now, I know for myself in my life that when I was a teenager, I needed a clean start. I needed to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. And I know many of you in here this morning have done the very same thing. At some age, at some point in your life, you decided to place your trust in Jesus Christ. And you were clean. You are a new creation. But folks, let's be honest. Over time, I don't care if you buy your kids some Sunday clothes or some good clothes, eventually they will either outgrow them, or if you're like me, you will go outside and play in them and run them and get in trouble. But either way, new clothes, after a while, become old clothes. New relationships become old relationships. New experiences become old experiences. So as we talk this morning, I, I want you to understand that, that we can get that same feeling again. We can get that clean slate. And it comes through Jesus Christ. It comes not only in a one-time salvation experience, but it comes in a daily experience called sanctification. That daily experience of confessing our sins before God. And when we confess our sins, He forgives them, and we become clean again. As we look at the term, starting with a clean slate, what does that actually mean? Well, according to the dictionary, it means to start again afresh, to ignore the past, and to start over again. If you are given a clean slate, you can start something again. And all of the problems caused by you or other people in the past will be forgotten. Seems like a fairy tale, does it not? Because let's be honest, there are, are things that have happened in our life. There are things that we have done to other people that quite honestly you can't wash away with a bar of soap. There is not a magical verse that will just take those memories away. But how do we start with a clean slate in 2015? 
We're going to see from God's Word how. But my question for you this morning as we frame up everything for the message is, is it possible to start with a clean slate in today's world? Is it possible to start with a clean slate in today's world? Many of you would say, absolutely. Some of you would say, it's hard. Some of you would say, no way. But we have a lot of things going against us when it comes to clean slates today. I thank God every day that social media was not invented when I was in high school. Because I did some bonehead things. And there were some things I wore and things that I did that I'm glad that uh, were not chronicled by the Internet. But in t- today, we actually have, you realize, we all have a digital footprint. Even those of you that don't have computers, somewhere, some way, some company has typed your information, whether it be an insurance company or a health company or, or your taxes. Every one of us have what they call a digital footprint. And for those like myself that spend time on Facebook, every like, every picture, every article, everything you read, everything that you do on social media, whether it be on Facebook or Twitter or Google Plus or my page, your page, our page, everybody have a page, wherever it might be, everything that we click, everything that we buy, everything that we do online is cataloged and, and given to us into a digital footprint. And those footprints will stay with us. As a matter of fact, nowadays, when, when kids go to uh, interview, even with Fortune 500 companies, or even just a store down the street, a lot of times, the, before they are considered for a position, the employer, the human resource department, will go check the, the, the person applying, will go check their social media, check their digital footprint, to which that fun time you had on New Year's Eve five years ago that was captured by your best friend having a good old time with the beer in hand saying, let, let the good times roll, your employer sees that. And we tell kids that. They don't think about that. Everything we do is common. It is impossible to start with a clean slate in today's world from the world standard, though. And some of you, I know what you say. Well, preacher, I don't have a computer. I don't, I don't even know what a Facebook thing is. You know, just you're preaching to the younger kids, aren't you? No, I'm not, because every one of us, somewhere in our lives, somewhere in our house, somewhere where we can get to it, we have our files, our folders, our photo albums, those things that remind us of our former life, those things that we have hidden away like letters and cards and memories that we treasure or maybe some of those memories that we harbor. There's a difference between treasuring and harboring, is there not? There's a big difference. Things that you treasure are things that you want to keep for, uh, to make you feel better. Things that you, you, you harbor on are things that you can't let go of. That you are more happier being miserable, hanging on to the things that have happened that are bad in your life, than letting go and letting God take care of those things. Family photo albums that capture most of the best of times. But for some, maybe they are reminders of times that weren't so great. Well, if you don't have a digital footprint, you don't have files, you don't have folders, you don't have photo albums, you do have a heart. 
And you do have a mind. And God uses those things in our lives to, to speak to us. But however, in our memory, sometimes we have the inability to forgive those that have hurt us. The inability to forgive maybe yourself for something that you have done to someone else. But most importantly, in our hearts, sometimes we just fail to ask God for forgiveness. And tragically, in that situation, when we live in guilt as Christians, listen, if we are a Christian, and we are living in guilt over something that has happened in our past, that we have asked forgiveness for, then it's because we're living in it, not because God has put us there. Why do we hold on to sins and consequences of things we have already been forgiven for? Folks, in my Bible, I see nowhere where God is our accuser. Our accuser is the devil. Our accuser is our evil nature. God does the opposite of accusing. Yes, he, he, through His Word and through His Spirit, He reveals things in our lives that we need to take care of, but not to push us down, but to set us free. To have a clean slate. But Jesus knew that love and forgiveness, when it comes to clean slates, love and forgiveness go hand in hand. And they are necessary to carry out the greatest commandment he ever gave. Do you remember what, it, when someone said, Jesus, okay, we've got the entire scriptures here. We've got the Ten Commandments. We've got all of these uh, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy laws. And we've got all of these things here. How do you sum this up? And he says this in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. This is what he says in Matthew 22, 36 through 40. He says, teacher, which commanded in the law is the greatest. He said to them, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is, Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the laws and the prophets depend on these two commands. So in other words, break it down. What's the fact, Jack? Give me the clip notes. Let me know what this, this whole Christian life means. It means... Love God with all your heart and love others as you love yourself. The mantra today is love yourself and then love others. Put yourself before others. I am so glad God did not do that. I am so glad that God put himself on the cross through his son Jesus Christ so that we may live. Our world says look out for number one. God says, look out for others. Folks, our culture, our lives, you and I will be judged not on what we have accomplished, but on how we treat other people. If you don't believe me, go to a few funerals. Those people that have had an impact on people's lives, you can see it. And those who have not, you can see it. Well, as we get to our passage today, uh, we're going to be looking in uh, Luke chapter 11. But as we approach that, I want you to understand, this is a, a very familiar passage 
This is the Lord's Prayer. And while Jesus was teaching his disciples not what to pray, because I know a lot of us, we know the Lord's Prayer. When I was playing football in high school, we were allowed to say it before every game, thank the Lord. But we know the Lord's Prayer, and that is a very special prayer. But Jesus was not teaching us a rote prayer to just to just give any time we, we need a prayer. It's like prayer in a box. There's nothing wrong if you say that. A prayer is a prayer. Amen? And it's Scripture, and it never returns, no avoid. But I want you to understand, let's not get so stuck on the words to pray as to the meaning. Jesus was not teaching them what to pray. He was teaching them how to pray. How to pray, okay? And so let's go to Luke chapter 11, verse 4. And it will be on the screen for you. If you don't have your Bibles or there's a Bible in the pew in front of you, I'll go ahead and tell you, we're going to jump back and forth a little bit today. And uh, so we're going to have some Bible aerobics, amen? But, uh, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. And do not bring us into temptation. Wow. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also are to forgive everyone in debt to us. What good is it for God to forgive us and us not forgive someone else? Oh, preacher, you don't understand. You don't understand what's happened to me. You're not old enough to know what I've been through. You're too young. You don't understand. Folks, you don't know what I've been through. And I don't know what you've been through. We all have to deal with love. We all have to deal with forgiveness. And the great thing is, God knows what we've been through. And He has not left us. While Jesus is teaching this, we see that He talks about sins, or some translations say debts or transgressions. And sins, that the term means, it's an archery term, that means to miss the mark. God's mark is His Word, is what He proclaims in His Word that we are to live by. And when we do something that is off to the left, off to the right, that strays from that, that is called sin. And that means to miss the mark. Have you ever missed the mark that God has for your life? I do it every day. And it's called sin. And so we see that we have sins. We also see that He talks about to forgive. We must forgive others as we have been forgiven. To forgive means to let go. To let alone. And I've got a slide for that as well. To disregard. How about to leave and not discuss it? To let go of it. To give up a debt. Forgive to remit. Can you imagine if you owed something on your house? Which probably a lot of us in here do. I cannot imagine what I would do if someone said, Oh, James, by the way, uh, I'm going to pay your mortgage. It's, it's paid for. You'd be like, yes! Gives us something to pray for, right? Because that's a debt that I owe. That is something that I will pay on until it, either I die or it gets paid off. And some of you have lived long enough to pay off a house, two houses or three houses, and you know what it's like to see that mortgage just be put away. It's an awesome feeling, is it not? But what if someone were to say, don't worry, it's paid in full. Folks, the mortgage of our heart, the mortgage of our lives, 
who we are, our eternal life, has been paid in full through Jesus Christ. We owe nothing to no one for our salvation. If we know Jesus Christ, we are free. And that means we are free indeed. Paid for, bought in full by the blood of Christ. Amen? So why, if we have been forgiven, can we not forgive others? Mm. You ever heard of the fault box? The fault box? Let me tell you about the fault box. A couple was married for 15 years. They began having more than usual disagreements, and they wanted to make their marriage work, so they agreed to an idea that the wife had. This is a great idea. For one month, they planned to drop a slip in a fault box. Each one of them had a fault box. The boxes would provide a place to let the other know about daily irritations. The wife was diligent in her efforts in this approach. She put in things like leaving the jelly top off the jar. Wet towels on the, shop, on the shower floor. Dirty socks in the hamper. Her list comprised of every fault she could have thought about for the last one. I mean, her box was, you know, it was the sides were extended out. There was so much paper in it. Well, finally the end of the month came, and it came time for them to trade boxes so they could open up and read about all of the irritations that the spouse had with one another. So... The male opened up the box that his wife had pulled, had filled up, and he, he saw all of these things and all of these things. And Well, then the wife opened hers. The first slip said, I love you. The second slip said, I love you. Every slip, I love you. I love you. I love you. First of all, that man gets kudos. That is a good move. Well, folks, let me tell you what. The world and you yourself will fill the box with your faults. And for every fault that you put in there, God says, I love you. You can fill the box with all... Every, there are some people around you that quite honestly just irritate you. Amen? It's kind of like God has put some people in your life just to be sandpaper to make you smooth, Right? But you know what? God loves them. And God loves you. The point is, aren't you glad that God doesn't keep a box of our faults laying around in heaven? Because when he pulls out our box, our slip, it says, forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. I love you. Forgiven, forgiven. And we still go to him and say, but God, look, this was... What I did was really bad, and you said you've forgiven me, but I can't move on. You know what he says? That's your fault. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, let me give you an idea of God's forgiveness. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 18. It says, For by one offering 
He has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this, for after he had said, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. He adds, I will never again remember their sins and lawless acts. Underline that. Verse 17, he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless acts. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Folks, when we are forgiven of a sin, there is no other need for an offering for it. It is forgiven. That would be like someone forgiving you your mortgage and you keep paying it. Nobody would do that. But we do that with our sins. We do that when we, when we try to have a clean slate. The accuser comes back and says, Oh, but remember, you're this. Let me pull out your thought box and let me remind you of how bad you are and what you've done. That's Satan. And that's the accuser. And you know you can tell him where to go, right? Those are, that's the instance where you can tell him to go to H-E double hockey sticks where he belongs. He is our accuser, not God. And we see in this verse, we see God's love in verses 14 through 16. We see his instruction in verse 16 where it says that uh, he gives us the Holy Spirit and he writes the things on our minds. Folks, why, why do we know that we're sinning? It's because God's word tells us in our heart the Holy Spirit convicts us of that. And then we see his forgiveness in verses 17 and 18, where he says he chooses to remember no more. Offering for sin is not needed. All right, now we're going to do some some quick skipping. I want to just give you three illustrations, and I figured the best place to do that would be the Bible. Let's look at three areas where we need love and forgiveness. The first one, we're going to look in John chapter 8. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. For time's sake, I'm not going to to read all of that, but I do want you to know where it's at. This is the parable, well, not the parable, but this is the story of the adulterous woman. And what I want you to see is, is that one of the biggest areas that we need to seek forgiveness in, that we need to confess, that we need to receive this forgiveness and quit looking at the fault box and move on, is that of physical sin and impurity. Now, understand that this, this passage here, this, this whole situation was a setup from the word get-go. Because at the beginning, according to Deuteronomy and Leviticus, if a man and a woman were caught in adultery, they were both to be stoned. Thank God we don't have that today. But they were to be stoned. And so... <laughs> The Jewish leaders thought, (laughs) we're going to get Jesus with this one. Because if he gives her a pass, then he's not upholding the Jewish law. But if he does say to kill her, then we'll tell the Roman authorities that he's killing people, and they'll get it for that. Man, they were very proud of themselves. But Jesus, in his fashion, what did he say? He turned the tables on them. We see that in this adulterous woman parable, we see the fact that 
He said, which one of you is without sin? Then go and cast the first stone if you're without sin. Folks, we see that physical sin puts us in bad situations. In verse 8, or excuse me, in verse 3, it says the scribes brought the woman who was caught in adultery. Folks, if the man and woman were committing adultery, she wouldn't have been there in the first place. When we allow physical sins to control our lives, when we allow things that we look at, things that we think about, things that we listen to, things that we dwell on, things that are impure, when we let those things reside in our lives and not get them out, they put us in places we don't belong. And when we are in places we don't belong, we often get caught and pay a price higher than we ever wanted to pay. The adulterous woman, yes, she was used as a trap. But I want you to understand, when we have physical sins, it gives us, or gives Satan an opportunity to use us. It puts us in a position where we should not be. It allows us to be used by evil people. And physical sin also hurts ourselves and others. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Run from sexual immorality. Every sin a person can commit is outside the body. But on the contrary, the person who is sexually immoral sins Sins against his own body. It is not rocket science to know that when we, uh, when we have physical relationships outside of the bonds of marriage, it takes its toll on us. And sometimes it's physically, but sometimes it's just mentally. Folks, that, that union, that, that, that time to be with one person, God created it. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. But when we take it outside of God's parameters, it has an effect on our lives. Because we're giving ourselves to someone or something. Whether it be for real or in your mind. We lose a part of ourselves. And we see here that also God's role in here was to judge. Our role is to show forgiveness. It says in verse 7, When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Folks, don't be so quick to judge people that have been caught in sin. Because every one of us in here are sinners. And what would you do if your private sin became public? Folks, you know, I know a lot of churches we get we get beat on because we're, we're a traditional church and a lot of people will think that that, there are, that that we are closed-minded and that we are ultra-fundamental. And I don't believe we are. I believe that if someone came into this church and had issues, that we would love them. doesn't mean we would accept what they do, but we would love them because they are no better or we are no better than they are. But folks, be very careful that we, we don't sit in our pews and sit back and armchair quarterback everybody else's life when we've got problems of our own. The thing I love about this is Jesus silenced her accusers. Listen here. If you are living in guilt over something that you have done, and Jesus has forgiven you of that, I want you to understand he has also silenced those accusers as well. Jesus forgives and he frees us. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go 
and sin no more. The next thing I want us to see is in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. This is the paralytic who was lowered down to Jesus by his four friends. And man, I could preach for an hour just on that. So just let me give you the nugget that I want to give to you this morning from this. In Luke 5, verses 11 through 26, I want us to focus on verses 19 and 20. Since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered in, the, in on the mat and threw the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> It didn't say seeing the paralyzed man's faith. What did it say? Seeing the faith of those four friends that lowered that man to Jesus, seeing their faith healed that man. Folks, your faith can make a difference in those that are paralyzed by sin. And the thing here is that the paralytic, he has sin in his life, and that was the greatest thing he had. No one knew what his sin was, but understand, back in those days in biblical times, if someone was born um, with, with some type of affliction, if someone was paralyzed, the, the running thought was someone in your family must have sinned to cause that. And so here you have the Pharisees, and you have a church or a house full, crowded of people, so much to where people can't even get the door. And then, and then the man is lowered down. And of course everybody wants him to say, you know, Get up, walk, and have, you know, be healed. He does do that. But what was his first? What was the most important need that man had? To get his sins forgiven. That's right, Miss Pauline. To get his sins forgiven. Folks, we have got a prayer list of people that are hurting, and we pray for them every day. But folks, our bodies, there's nothing we can do. They eventually wither and die away. But our sins and where we stand with the Lord, we must pray for other people because it is our faith that will make a difference in somebody else's life. Because there are people out there that have sinned and don't even know it. How are they going to know? If we are going to have to bring them to Jesus. Now, we don't have necessarily, you're not going to carry a mat in today. I mean, if someone wants to get on the roof, there's only about one or two people in here crazy enough to get on the roof. Alright? But if you want to get on the roof and lower somebody in there, that's fine. But your core of a mat might not be lowering them through the roof. But it might be you and a couple people saying, okay, let's do nothing but pray for this person for the next 30 days. And you bathe that person in prayer. Invite them to church or strike up some kind of conversation with them. You can take a corner in somebody's life and do that. Well, the last one we see is that of restoration. In John chapter 21, and <laughs> this passage just, it, it means a lot to me just because there is no doubt that Jesus loved the disciples. And there is no doubt that Jesus loved Peter because Jesus is about ready to ascend to the Father. He is about ready to take his throne. He's about ready to get everything that he had denied, everything that he had rejected. He is about ready to go home. Folks, you ever been on a trip 
and the first three days are awesome. But the next day you start thinking about, man, it would be good to be home. What I say about people that get older, you're more excited about when you're going to get home than when you're going on the trip. He was going home. But he had some unfinished business. What was that? He had to restore Peter. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. We see here that like Peter, at some point in our life, we have or we will deny Jesus. Maybe not in some grandiose way. But there will be times where we deny him. And I love the fact that one of the last things Jesus did before leaving this earth was to restore Peter. Starting in verse 15. When they had eaten breakfast, John asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd, my sheep. He told him, and he asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he had asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything, and you know I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. And I love that for every time that Peter denied Jesus, Jesus restored Peter. When Jesus was questioning, what did that mean? He basically was asking Peter this question. He was saying, do you love me above everybody else? The second thing he was asking, do you love me for who I am? Meaning the Messiah. And the third thing was, he was asking, are you my friend? Folks, I want you to understand something. This is why Jesus restores us. He loves us for who we are. Look up here. He loves us for who we are. Jesus loves you, not for what you do for him but for who you are. You know who you are? You are His child. You are His creation. You are made in His image. And He loves you. He has a plan for you. Just like Peter, He said, feed my sheep. He's got a plan for you and I. And then also, He wants our lives, folks, not our lip service. There was a a writer or a novelist. She was a secular writer. She was a non-Christian. Uh, her name was, I'll try to pronounce this correctly, Marganita Lasky. Marganita Lasky. Who said in 1988, not long before she died, she says in an interview on television, and I can't believe she said this, but it's so true. What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. Folks, we can start with a clean slate today. We can receive God's forgiveness. And we can also, some of you need to grant forgiveness to others. But see, forgiveness is an action that we must take. Here's how forgiveness works. Does God have amnesia? Yes or no? No. Does, does, God forgive, does God need a to-do list? Does he need to tie a ring around or a, a, a string around his finger? 
No, God is all knowing. And here's the thing about forgiveness, folks. It says in Psalm 103, verse 12. Psalm 103, verse 12. Underline it, memorize it, go to it, do whatever you need to do. But understand, in Psalm 103, verse 12, this is how forgiveness works. Psalm 103, 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. I want you to understand when it says so far as from the east to the west, there is no point. If you go east on our world, you will always go east. You never reach west, do you? If you go west, you'll never reach east. Here's the thing about forgiveness, guys. God doesn't have amnesia. God doesn't forget our sin. He chooses not to remember it. Woo! It's a big difference. He chooses not to remember sins. And that is the way forgiveness works. If someone has done something to you that hurts, you have to physically choose to not remember it because it will be thrown in your face time after time after time and you have to say, it's been covered by the blood. And if I can be forgiven, that person can be forgiven. That is how you have a clean slate. Is that you pray for forgiveness. You pray and you, you experience God's forgiveness. But more importantly, since God chooses not to remember your sins, you need to choose not to remember other people's sins. That's how you have a clean slate. Everybody needs a clean slate. If we are unable to forgive others who have wronged us, we do not truly understand the depths to which God has forgiven us. I'll say that one more time. I'll read it right off the screen. If we are unable to forgive others who have wronged us, we do not truly understand the depths to which God has forgiven us. If you would like to come forward and and receive that forgiveness of knowing that your sins are forgiven and that you will have eternal life in heaven, you can come forward. I will pray with you and we will begin discipling you and we will do as a church what God has called us to do is to baptize and make disciples of all members. If you'd just like to have prayer, join the church or come to the altar. It's open for you. Would you please stand?